when I when I saw that and Greenberg said, you know, some things just put things in perspective. I just thought, you know, <laughs> some things really do, and it, it was a gift. Uh, perspective usually is. Uh, it, it's a gift to kind of not just see things how they are or see what other people are going through, but to see your life appropriately in light of reality. That's the gift of perspective, and it is a gift. And uh, those of us who are parents, we recognize what an important gift it is to give to our children. So on occasion, you know, maybe your child is uh, a little bit, I don't know, acting sort of selfishly and self-centered, and they kind of feel like all history revolves around them. And and so you give them the gift. It's called humble pie. You bake it up and you give them seconds because they need it. Or on occasion, they might be feeling really, really down on themselves. And so you give them some perspective and you remind them just how, how loved they are, how special they are, and things aren't that bad. And perspective is a gift. Sometimes we have a tendency to think, unfortunately, that something is only worthwhile if it's immediately practical, like, okay, here's the application, I need my little to-do list, and and that's just not true. A lot of times we'll be reading through the Bible and and we'll notice, it didn't seem like Jesus told me to do anything, he just changed my perspective. Well, if you know anything about perspective, you know, well, that's very practical to have appropriate vision. When I was in in high school, I was playing basketball up through my senior year, and I was decent. I was a good athlete and all the rest, but my shot wasn't that great. And then I discovered the summer before my freshman year that I had a vision problem. I needed glasses. I mean, legally, I couldn't drive without glasses, but I didn't know that till after I was out of high school. So the reason I'm a pastor today and not a professional NBA basketball player is because I didn't know I needed glasses. Now, I'm kind of kidding, but it is helpful to see things appropriately. Or sometimes maybe if you go fishing and you, you don't recognize that there's a little bit of refraction, you know, when you're looking and you think the fish is there, but it's actually over here. If you don't have the right perspective, a lot of the things that you do or don't do are not going to fall into place appropriately. So perspective's a gift. And, and today Jesus just lays some things out for us that give us appropriate perspective with very practical application attached to it. And that all I want to do initially is just help you to see what it is that I think Jesus really, really wants you to, to see. Here's what he lays out for us in uh, Luke chapter 12. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. These are verses 32 through 46. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? 
And I, I love the answer Jesus gives. He tells another parable. Uh, the Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming, and then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, in a nutshell, Jesus is letting us know, look, you're not stuck between a rock and a hard place. That's not right. But you're also not sit enthroned in, in the center of all of, of history. Here, here's where you're located. You are in the midst of the kingdom that has come and the kingdom that's coming. You're in the midst of the already and the not yet. You are right now located between a beautiful start and a perfect ending. And the way he communicates this is largely around the concept of the kingdom. Now, when you become a Christian and Jesus becomes your king, you're brought into the kingdom and the kingdom is brought into you and there's a certain power. When, when you become a believer, it's not just, oh, hey, I wanted to turn over a new leaf and now I have a personal peace. No, there is a power that has been brought to bear in your life. There is something greater and above you and beyond you and even from the future that comes in your life that radically cha changes you and transforms you. It's a power. It's the kingdom. Now, before we get into the effects of the, the kingdom, what it actually does for you, let's just kind of get a little bit more clear on the kingdom, the coming kingdom. I want to direct you to a great, great verse. This is over in uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Great verse. Jesus there says, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, those who have lost houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers will receive a hundred times as much and inherit eternal life. He says, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. The, the Greek word that's translated the renewal of all things is this really interesting word. It doesn't occur very often in the New Testament. It's polygenasia. And it comes from two words, pollen, which means again, and genasia, like Genesis, birth or beginning. It's a new birth or rebirth or, or new beginning. And this word actually is kind of what is called by some people a terminus technicus, meaning it's not just a general word. It actually was attached to a very specific concept in the, the days of the Greeks. See, the Greeks had this idea that all of the universe, all the world, all of life was spinning downward. It was spiraling down into darkness and chaos and, and disorder. Today we call that the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. Everything goes from order to chaos. A perfect example would be men. As they get older up here, spirals to down here. It's, that's entropy. The universe is falling apart. And then you recognize things will never be as they were before. And the only way things are going to be as they were before because everything's falling apart is something they called polygenasia. It's, it's a word that was attached to this idea that every so often in the Greeks, they believed that, the, that history was cyclical, okay, just repeating. And every so often things would get so bad that the universe would have to sort of reset 
there would have to be a cleansing, a renewal, the polygenesis, and it was through a fire. It would be through, through this uh, purging in, in the furnace, so to speak. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but when I was younger, my uh, dad pointed to this dark field. I thought, I thought there had been a fire like accidentally, and he told me, no, they actually intentionally burned over this field. I was like, really? And he said, no, it's going to be, they didn't kill anything. It's going to be greener than it was before. And sure enough, you know, I don't know, months later I came back, and I had never seen such incredibly green grass. I don't know the science of that or how that works, but that's the idea, polygenesia, this, this rebirth, the starting over again. But the Greeks thought of it as cyclical, and they didn't really identify what would be the fire or the, the, the furnace that would burn things and restore things. Jesus, though, is operating out of a Jewish concept where history is lineal. It has a start and an end, and things are moving toward a point. And so when Jesus uses this polygenesis, we'll just go that way, when he uses that word, you have to understand what he's communicating. He's saying all of history is moving toward a point when, when, when what, is, what has been done will be undone. Everything that was sad will no longer be true. Everything will be restored. Paradise lost will be paradise restored. And it's going to happen through this moment of polygenesis, this, this rebirth of the cosmos. Now the question that you have to ask and I have to ask is, okay, what fire, what furnace is so hot, so powerful, that it can reset the universe, that it can restore what was lost, that, could, that it can make what was sad all of a sudden somehow now just untrue? And Jesus identifies that for us. Here it is. It's the Son seated on His glorious throne. It's the coming of the kingdom in all of its fullness. It is the burning fire of His joy. It's the glory, uh, the, the burning glory of God ruling perfectly, seated on His throne in Jesus Christ. That's the polygenesis. This is where it's all going. And so Jesus says, you've got to be looking toward this and knowing this is coming. That's the kingdom in all of its fullness. And what the scripture communicates in so many different ways is that that coming kingdom has actually, the future in some respect, actually is now. It's not like we're always moving toward the future. It's more like, no, God's perfect future has, in fact, in some respect or another, invaded our present. And so it's changing everything. This is not, when we talk about the coming kingdom and its fullness and the rebirth of all things and the renewal of the cosmos in Christ Jesus, we're not just talking about, hey, here's something that's coming that's going to make up for all the bad things that you've had to face. Here's the consolation prize. Here's the thing that's going to kind of anesthetize your thinking so you kind of forget about all the bad things that you actually went through. No, it's, it's more than that. And I need to read this to you because I try to put it as concise as I could and this is the best I could communicate. Every bad thing you've ever experienced, it's going to be transmuted, it's going to be altered into a greater joy because you've experienced it. Every problem, every evil, every pain is going to be undone. It's not just going to be covered over. The new glorious reality is somehow going to become better for not having once been right. The glorious reality is everything sad is going to become untrue because under the fiery joy and the burning glory of the perfect rule of the one seated upon the throne, everything is going to be as everything should be. It's the restoration of all things. Now, it's really kind of hard to communicate this 
as tightly as I possibly can. So I thought I would just show you a, a video that I think kind of captures at least a hint of what we're talking about in terms of polygenesis, the rebirth, the renewal, the, the coming kingdom in all of its fullness. I, I saw this, um, this clip from the news. It was actually on the Wednesday evening news on KVU. It's about a 20-minute, not 20-minute, two-minute clip. And uh, toward the end of the, the two minutes, you're going to see a couple from our church who are being interviewed, uh, the McClellans, Terry and Brian, and uh, the, the McClellans. And so when, when they're interviewed, you're kind of going to get this. So anyways, just check this out, and I'll draw it together for you. A strange, shirtless man stealing vehicles and breaking into homes. That's what people in one Georgetown neighborhood say happened after a series of bizarre burglaries. And a suspect is now in custody. KVU's Kayla Norwood has that story. She came and she said, Mom, there's this guy without a shirt on driving down the street in a golf cart. Do you think it's the same guy from last night? Word spreads fast after people in this small community say they spotted a strange man in their neighborhood. I was told that it started up the street with a stolen pickup truck showing up on somebody's property. Steve Pelo says that's what happened last night, but it didn't stop there because when he woke up this morning... There's two of them here now. The third one is not here. He went into the truck. He went into the van. He says his cars were broken into and the keys to his Harley were stolen. A few doors down, Julia Hilt says her daughter actually spotted the man riding around at 11 this morning. I realized, oh my goodness, that's the same guy. If you follow the trail, that golf cart is believed to be the Gator ATV owned by someone else that made its way next door on the McLennan's front yard where the suspect did some more damage. They broke into the house. We don't know how they broke into the house. And they stole the keys to our yellow 20, uh, 2006 Dodge Charger and then stole the car <laughs> and left. And in that car is where the McLennan say police found him safe and sound. He was passed out asleep in my car in Liberty Hill. <laughs> That was Kayla Norwood reporting. The McClellans say that he took a popsicle from their freezer, but they did get their charger back. Police haven't said whether anything else was stolen from the neighbor. We should learn more in the coming days. A strange shirtless man. So here, here's the good news. The, the bad news is crime is up. The good news is so is stupidity. So uh, that's, that's good to know. Uh, but here, here's the point. You know, actually, I did, in that, didn't you like that about the popsicle going missing? And so I asked Brian about this. Like, well, how did you know you were missing a popsicle? And it's like, do, you, do you count your popsicles? Like, you know, like, you know, note to self, when I go to their house, don't eat the popsicles, you know. So he said, well, actually, they, they got one. He got one out of the freezer in the garage, finished it off, and then he threw away the popsicle stick in the trash in the kitchen. So he might have been shirtless, but at least he was tidy. Uh, so here's the... Here's the reason I showed the, the whole video to you. Here's, here's uh, Brian and Terry, and, uh, you know, one day their car's there, and then, you know, later that day it's not. And then they get it back later on in the day, and everything's returned and restored to where it was. Now, here's the deal. Everything is restored to where it was in the morning, where it, where it had been in the morning. By the time the evening rolls around, everything as, is as it should have been. But now they have a story. Now they're appreciative of what it is that they now have that they had lost because if they hadn't lost it, they wouldn't have appreciated what it is that they actually had and also the sacrifice and the turmoil in order to retrieve what it was that they had lost. Uh, now they have a story. It would have been an otherwise uneventful day, but now they have a story, and it's a story that they're always going to remember. Okay, That's, that's at least a, a hint 
of what we're talking about with regards to the restoration of all things, phylogenesis. Something that maybe is a little bit more personal, let's, let's press in a little bit deeper. Um, everybody here knows that uh, Senator McCain had his funeral service yesterday, and, and there, were, there were lots of interviews and specials about John McCain prior to the funeral service. Well, I saw one of those, those uh, interviews, it was 60 Minutes, and this was really interesting to me. As John McCain was being interviewed on 60 Minutes, he said, I, I don't want to be, be maudlin or anything, but I have had the best life of anyone that, that anyone I know has ever had. He was a senator. Right. And so I'm thinking about his life. Okay, now, he was in a prison camp, a Vietnam prison camp, for six years, 1967 to 1973. 1975? I thought it was until 1973. Five years, five years, six calendar years. Thank you for correcting me, Brad. Note to self. <laughs> no, I was kidding. I was totally kidding with you. It was a long time. If it, was, if it was one year, six months, that's too long to be tortured, right? Then, of course, you know, he understands what it is to go through divorce. That's pretty painful, and some of you know that. And then, of course, he dies from an aggressive brain cancer, not so great. And then he was in politics for decades, which that can't be entirely easy because when you win office, you barely, you typically only have barely half the population that likes you. And then once you get into the office, only half of the people who voted you in actually like what it is that you did when you went in, but you're the lesser of two evils. And so at any given moment, about 70% of the population is just not really wide about you. And he's gone through all these things and all these stresses, and then he gets real close to becoming president, but a few things kind of go wrong. And, and then he says, I've had the best life of anyone I've known has ever had. What is that? Now, some of you know, well, well I kind of understand that because I've had some bad times too, but I would look back on my life and go, you know, it was still the best life anyone could have ever had. What is that? That's a hint. That is a, that is a foreshadowing, okay? That's a, that's a pointing toward the polygenesis, the renewal of all things, where even the sad things, because of the work of Jesus Christ and the burning glory and the fiery joy of his perfect rule, just makes what was once sad untrue. Now, the interesting thing is, while that's coming, and that's obviously future, um, oftentimes Jesus talks about it in terms of something that is already present, that the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God has come. And here in verse 32, he says, The Father has been pleased, past tense, already done, accomplished fact. He's been pleased to give you, to have given you the kingdom. And yet it's something that we also look forward to. So you get to the Old Testament to passages like this, and it's not on the screen. I'll just have to read this to you. This is Psalm 96, verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. And so we see that this is coming. And, and every time we practice communion, once a month when we get together, we go to Luke chapter 22, typically. And in Luke chapter 22, right around that communion observation, there's this statement where Jesus says, I'm not going to drink this wine with you again until the kingdom comes. So it's obviously future, and yet he often talks about it as something that's already come. And, and the oddity, the, the, the weirdness, the paradox here is that the New Testament and Jesus in the New Testament frequently t teaches and talks about the kingdom as something that has already come, and yet it's still coming. The already, but the not yet. The kingdom that's come, but the kingdom that is still coming. And when you start looking through the New Testament and you, and you start seeing the, the tension here, here's what you need to recognize. 
in a very real sense, the, the, the coming kingdom has already been given to you. And what that means is God's future has already invaded your present and is changing your life. There is a, there is a power with regards to where God is taking you and with the assurance that he will take you where he would have you to be, that you will be conformed in the very image of Christ. Let me, let me put it to you like this. A lot of times when people come to Christ, here's what they think. They think, oh, I came and I believe in Jesus, and now I've got this little inner peace, and it's going to make me a better person. And that's kind of sort of true, but not entirely, because we don't look at Christianity, because Jesus doesn't look at Christianity as somehow moral reformation. Like, I'm turning over a new leaf, and this is a self-improvement program, and, and here we go, and I'm making a decision. I'm over here, and I want to get over here, and I'm going to take certain steps to be where I need to be. We, moral reformation or turning over a new leaf or self-improvement is I'm here in the present, and I need to make my way over to the future. But the way Jesus looks at it is the kingdom of God, God's future, has invaded your present and is pulling you to where it is that God would have you to be. And what that means is you can try to resist where God is taking you. But it's not just a matter of you making a choice to go where it is that you want to go. This is, this is a power unto itself that you don't control. That presses you and brings you to where you and I need to be. Let me put it to you like this. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, which I'm just kind of curious. How many of you all have read Mere Christianity? Okay, a lot of us. Once you finish the Bible, you ought to read Mere Christianity. Not kidding. In the ninth chapter of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about how oftentimes people come to Jesus and, and they invite him into their life about the same way somebody would invite someone into their home, like, hey, you're a painter or a plumber. Why don't you come on in here and fix these things up? Because, you know, the kid's room needs a, a new paint job and, and the sink isn't draining real well. And, and when Jesus comes in, there's so much more that he does than that. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that out the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The command, be ye perfect, and he's referring to Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be ye perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were gods and he is going to make good his words if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose. He will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is 
what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. Listen, when the holy polygenesis fire of the fullness of God's kingdom comes flooding into your little cottage and mine, you have to expect radical newness. This is not something over which you are in control. You can argue with the architect over the design of your house, but you will not direct him. He will direct you and empower you and will do in your place what it is that he sees fit. And so we have to expect a certain amount of unpredictability, and we also have to be kind of anticipating something radically off the charts of what it is that we might want for ourselves. Because this isn't moral reformation. This is the kingdom of God being gifted to us by the Father through the Son. This is huge. Now, what does this mean for you and me practically? Okay, let's, now we're going to get practical. Here's what, here's what this means. This means that we have to abandon, number one, we have to abandon our small ambitions. And we need to embrace where it is that God is taking us because he is taking us somewhere. And both of those things are kind of tied up together in understanding where it is that God is taking you and where God is taking me. And Jesus actually lays it out for us in the passage that we just read in Luke chapter 12. Let me give you three things and we're going to close on this. First of all, the kingdom the Father has given to you brings about a fearless generosity. When Jesus says you sell all your possessions to give it to the poor, he is absolutely blowing apart the old standard of giving a manageable portion of our income. See, back in the day, in the Old Testament, when all the tithe was set up, here's what you did. You had your piece of land, and you, and you took your, your, your fruit or whatever it was that the land produced, and you gave one-tenth of the produce. You were giving off your income. And here Jesus is saying, well, you know, that was, nice, that was a nice start, but here's what's required. You're not just giving your income. You're giving all of your assets. And if you're going to give all your assets, if you're going to be that radically generous, what is required there? See, the antithesis to that kind of kind of generosity it's not well sacrifice it's fearlessness you you're not afraid of having nothing because you know the father is going to provide for you this is this is radical but the kingdom the father gives you brings about in your life and my life a willingness to give everything that's where he's taking you and that's where he's taking me here's a here's a second thing that the kingdom produces the kingdom the father has given you brings about service across all social barriers that is that when you're in the kingdom or the kingdom is in you, here's what happens. You're, you're looking at people not along the basis of are they above you or beneath you with regards to the social scale. You're just seeing their needs and asking how can I meet those needs. And then you meet those needs across social barriers without asking for or demanding any kind of public recognition. Now let's, let's spend a little bit of time on this one. Um, you might have noticed the servant in verses, I think, 42, 43, 44, 45, the, the servant who is... Uh, not looking for the king. He's not expecting the king to return. Now, he's been given this task of taking these resources and feeding all the servants. But he's not feeding all the other servants. In fact, he's only feeding himself. He's self-indulgent. He only cares about himself. And, and also, he starts beating these other men's servants and maidservants. I mean, he's already elevated himself to a position where he thinks he deserves more than what everybody else gets. And so when you're in that condescending position, you, you might as well you know, beat people while you're at it. And so they're oppressed and they're abused around him because he's not looking for the king. Now, you put that wicked servant in contrast to whom in the parable? Well, the, the contrast is the king who comes. This is what is so wild here in verse 37. Let's read this. 
It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, that is the master, will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. Now this makes absolutely no sense. Masters didn't serve servants. Servants were servants. Masters were masters. That's just how it worked. And then the master dresses himself for service. If you've got an older translation, you're going to see that it talks about girding himself. You gird yourself for service. You know what that is? This is back when people had robes. If they were going to do some heavy lifting or some labor, they would have to you know, lift their robes and tuck them in their belts. It's kind of like rolling up your sleeves. And so here's the master who's been gone on this journey. He's tired. You know, he's got donkey lag. And he gets back. And, of course, he just wants to lay there by the table and have a servant's wait on him. But when he gets back, here's what he does. He invites all the servant to his table. And, and then he waits on his servants and he feeds them. Out of his resources. What Jesus is communicating is in the fullness of the kingdom, which is active in your life, you're moving more and more by the power of the kingdom into being the kind of person for whom status and pedigree are no longer a concern because our concern as believers in the kingdom or people who have been invaded by the kingdom, we're not looking to climb the ladder. We're looking to descend the ladder so as to serve. That's how it is in the kingdom. And then there's a third thing that happens with regards to the gift the Father has given, and that would be the kingdom that he has given to you and me that produces within us a life-changing awareness of a future joy and justice. There's obviously a future joy here because you'll notice when the king comes, there's the banquet for everybody, and they're fed, and it's a great time. And then there's a future justice coming because there's also this this wicked servant that's got to be dealt with. And in verse 46, this wicked servant is chopped into little pieces. And so, ooh, well, that's kind of gross. Well, we'll get to that in just a second. But does that make a difference to know that there's a coming joy and a coming justice? Absolutely, it makes a difference. And we're supposed to be living with that constant awareness of the polygenesis, of the fullness of the coming of the kingdom, of the Son seated in his glorious position, reigning over all, and by his fiery justice and, and, and glorious presence, changing and making everything new. We're supposed to be living with that constant awareness, and that's what Jesus is driving at when he says in verse 35, you need to keep your lamps lit. You stay up. You don't go to sleep on this. You better be living with this constant spiritual awareness of what is coming because it will make all the difference in the world with regards to how you suffer and with regards to how you forgive. Let's just think about suffering for a second. You know how you can make it through really difficult times? You need to see a light at the end of the tunnel. You know what the light at the end of the tunnel is? It's the fullness of the kingdom of God. It's God restoring and making all things new. It is an incredibly bright light. How is it that you think the Christians suffered and suffered well and hung on the way that they did hang on? It's because they knew there was a glorious light at the end of the tunnel, and by faith they could see it. They had not fallen asleep on that reality. I was unfortunately doing a, a, a funeral service on Friday for a man whose wife had left him shortly before his mother died, and then his only son passed away just a few days ago at the age of 42. His whole family stripped away. And my encouragement to him was just be patient and look forward to what is yet to come. Because that's exactly how the people in the New Testament dealt with their pains and sufferings. They saw that their current affliction was light in comparison to what was yet to come and momentary in comparison to the eternality of what was yet to come in terms of the fullness of God's kingdom. You will not suffer well if you do not stay awake to the reality of the returning king and the fullness of the kingdom to come. 
But also, it's a lot easier to forgive when you recognize there's a justice that's coming. Okay, let's just be honest here. If you were one of the early Christians and you're drugged out of your house or dragged, I don't know, can you tell me the right word, Brad? I'm sorry, no, I'm kidding. If you're drugged out of your church or dragged out of your, your house or whatever it is and then you're beaten, or you see your parents suffer or you see your kids to get taken into slavery or you see your wife abused and whatever the case may be, you see your... You see all these horrible, horrible things as a Christian. How in the world are you going to get past that? How are you going to let go of that? Here's how. You recognize that there is a just judge, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. You don't have to retaliate, and you shouldn't retaliate, because there's justice coming, and you're not the just judge. I mean, for real. I know that may that this just sounds like so very earthy, but I just think about well, if something happened to my to my family, you know what helped me to not retaliate and take matters into my own hands? Here's what would help: if I knew my next door neighbor was a retired CIA hitman who looked like Denzel Washington, then I wouldn't have to take things into my own hands. I'd just know it would be taken care of for me. Or a little bit more realistically, when you have a police department that is doing its job. And when you're in a judicial system where the judges are just and honest, that sure helps to forgive and to let go. You, you know what you will not see with, within the first few centuries of Christianity? And this is kind of remarkable for its absence. There is no record anywhere in the history of the early church of retaliation from Christians. Now, this is remarkable. Because there are some awful things that happen to Christians. But you'll see some Christians being persecuted over here. And then this other group rises up over here. And then they go beat up this other group over here. And we're going to get even. There, there's no retaliation in the first few centuries of Christianity. You know why? Because their lamps are burning. They're, they're, they're mentally and spiritually, they were awake to the reality of the fullness of the kingdom. And the joy and the justice that he brings very practical honestly now how do we know that's all coming i mean oh okay ernest that sounds really good how do i know that that's coming well it's it all boils down to the nature of the king so how do i know that when the king returns and this kingdom comes in all its fullness that he's going to give and give and is not going to hold any good thing back from me how do i know there's that kind of generosity toward me yet to come well because we saw how the kingdom was brought Jesus held nothing good back from you or from me. He didn't just give a, a tithe of his blood or all of his possessions. He gave all of his life, all of who he was for all of who you are. We also notice that he crossed all kinds of boundaries and barriers. He crossed the barriers of sin and death and hell for you and me. Oh, and by the way, he's real big on justice because that's why he died on the cross in the first place, which was to fulfill the law and all the holy justice of God. You know he's big on justice, but he also did it for the joy that was set before him so as to bring you and me into a perfect relationship with the Heavenly Father. He was cut to pieces so that you and I would not have to be. When you think about the beautiful start, it gives you confidence of the perfect ending. And as long as you remember... You're somewhere there in between. It gives you an opportunity to actively participate, 
stay awake and cooperate with where this contractor is taking your life and mine. There's this wonderful verse over in Philippians that says, He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know what that means? God is going to have his way in your life and in my life. So cooperate. He's given you the gift of this incredible kingdom. Cooperate. Submit. He's taken you to a good place. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the love and the grace that you have you've given us in, in spades. You've held nothing good back from us. You crossed every barrier. You girded up yourself and you went to work. And, and you, our master, waited on us hand and foot. And you served us not just bread and juice, but your flesh and blood. And you want us to be a part of your joy. And that's why you fulfilled the, the, the justice that was demanded. That's what you were cut to pieces so we wouldn't have to be. So we just say thank you for being that kind of king. And thank you for being that powerful of a king where you will see the good work that you began carried out to completion. We are looking forward to the day where all things will be made new. Where you will restore things to being the way things should be. And Lord, as a part of your, your work now, we, we say thank you for what you're doing, not just in the universe as a whole, but thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And, and Father, we just want to say thank you for being so patient with us that while we would want a, just a nice, tidy little cottage, you have, a, have an agenda in our lives to rework us into castles fit for a king. Lord, teach us not to resist where you would have us to go. Teach us to cooperate with the gift you have given us, the kingdom. May we truly be a kingdom people, that people would see you in all of your glory and all of your character and all of your nature. We pray, Lord, that ultimately your kingship would be seen in and through us because you are a king like no other. We acknowledge that wholeheartedly without reservation and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our soon and coming King. Amen.